1 Kings chapter 6. I'm going to go ahead and pray as well as we get started. Lord, we ask you just right now to bless this time as we start looking at your word here in 1 Kings. You would guide and lead and show us what you would have us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, 1 Kings chapter 6 is the starting of the temple of Solomon that Solomon is going to build. And it's kind of an interesting thing when we look at it because it is so different from the tabernacle. And the tabernacle had great imagery on it. If you remember when we talked about it, as you entered into the tabernacle, the holy place, you walked through the black covering representing sin into a red covering representing the blood, into a white covering representing the purity of our forgiveness, into the blue and gold and, and purple covering representing our royalty in our, in our place with Jesus and, and the Father. Solomon's temple's not going to have any of this kind of decoration. It's not going to have any of this symbolism. It's going to be gold. By the time it gets done, it's gold. Everything is covered with gold. And what's the symbol for gold? A deity is part of the symbol for gold. De deity and royalty is the symbol of gold, but that's all it has. It, doesn't, it lost all of the significance of the tabernacle. Yet God is going to honor it. His presence is going to come in, and he's going to fill the place, but... It lost all the pictures that, that the tabernacle had that we can look at. So we look at this in verse 1. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign of, over Israel, in the month of Ziph, which was in the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. And the house which the king Solomon built for the Lord, the length thereof was 60 cubits, and the breadth was 20 cubits, and the height there was of 30 cubits. And the porch before the temple of the house, 20 cubits was, was the length thereof, according to the breadth of the house, and 10 cubits was its breadth there, there, thereof before the house. And for the house he made windows of narrow lights, and against the wall of the house he built chambers around about against the walls of the house around about, both of the temple and of the oracle, and he made chambers round about. The nethermost chamber was five cubits broad, and the middle was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. For without in the wall of the house he made narrow rest round about, that the beams should not be fastened to the walls of the house. For, and the house, when it was in building, it was built of stone, made ready before it was brought there, so that there was neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron heard in the house while it was in building. And okay, we'll stop there for a moment because we've got a good bit right there. Solomon starts the temple, the temple that his father dreamed about. David wanted to build God a temple, and he wanted to honor God, which is a good thing. And remember that God told David, no, you're not going to build my temple. You know, you, you've had too much too much evil, too much bloodshed from you, so you're not going to build a temple, but your son will. So Solomon is going to start this, and it says, And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. So it was 480 years before this that the Exodus happened. All right? This is a time mark. This is a mark that I have in my notes all over the place because I'm trying to figure out times between creation to, to, the, uh, to the present time from, from the biblical sources. So this is a time mark that says, from the day that the children of Israel left Egypt to the day that Solomon started building the temple, 
was 480 years. Yeah. And what happened during that 480 years? We had David's reign of 40 years. We had Solomon, uh, uh, Saul's reign of 40 years. And so we have 400 years between the first king to when Moses led the people out. During all that time, they were led by the judges. First by Moses for 40 years, then by Joshua, and then by a whole series of judges. And if you want to know the, all the different judges and how bad most of them were, read the book of Judges. Uh, and the book of Judges is a great book. We, we went through it back a while ago. It's a great book to show how God uses imperfect people to do his work. That's one wonderful thing when we read Judges. We look at guys like Samson, who loved his girls and loved his wine, <laughs> and got into trouble, but God still used him. You know, Gideon, so afraid, he's saying, God, I can't do this for you. I can't go out and, and fight this army. I'm nobody. And yet God used him. And so we look at this. 480 years, Solomon finally starts building a tabernacle, a temple, excuse me. The tabernacle has been in use for 479 years because it was built one year into the Exodus. If you remember, they spent one year in, in Sinai. You know, they, they camped out at Sinai for a year, building the temple, building all the items for the temple, uh, tabernacle, uh, and, and getting the Ten Commandments and all of that. And so 479 years later, they start building a temple. Started building. It's going to take 11 years to build, or seven years to build, but we'll get there. <laughs> and it says, and it tells us exactly when it starts. It said it started in the fourth year of Solomon, in the second month, which is a month as if they started building this building. And it says that he built a house of 60 cubits and 20 cubits, and it was 15, uh, 10 cubits high, excuse me, 20 cubits high. So in terms that we understand, it was 90 feet by 30 feet by 45 feet. Pretty, actually fairly small for a temple. Uh, and smaller than the tabernacle was. So this was, as, even though it's going to be one of the greatest buildings of all of history in archaeology, in, in history, it's still pretty small as far as a temple is concerned. Um, it would easily fit within our football, you know, football fields because it's only about 30 yards long and 10 yards wide and 15 yards high. It was very tall. It was a very skinny, tall building. And it was designed to hold the articles of the tabernacle. Could you repeat 30 yards long? 30 yards long, 10, 10 yards wide, and 15 feet high, uh, 10, uh, 15 yards high. So it's very tall, especially considered its width. It's, it's taller than it's wide. So yards. And so we see this building being put together. And then he has a what they call a porch, an area in front of it that's 20 cubits in length and 10 cubits out. So it covers the, the 10 wide and comes out 20 cubits. And that is where they're going to have the brazen altar and and those type of things, and, the, and the, la the brazen laver, which the priests are going to wash in. And remember that the tabernacle was the foundation for this, and we're going to see the same foundation. You walk into the front doors of the tabernacle, and you enter the holy place. The holy place has the table of showbread, where they put the 12 loaves of bread on every day, 
morning and night that represent for the, the tribes of Israel. You've got the menorah on the other side, which is running with the oil and kept lit all the time. And then you have the table of in, the altar of incense, which has the incense oil that's burning, which had a very special uh, combination that God says, this is, this is only for my incense. You are not to use it for anything else. And a matter of fact, there was a curse on anybody who used it for anything else. So I have no idea what it smelled like. <laughs> and I don't have an inclination to try to, to make it. But I'm sure it smelled beautiful. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been used for God. So you go in from there into the Holy of Holies. And there you had the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat over it. And we're going to find out that the Ark of the Covenant does not have all the stuff in it in Solomon's temple that it had originally. During Moses' day, it had the pot of manna, the, the rod that budded, and the Ten Commandments. We're going to find out later on it has just the Ten Commandments. All the other stuff is not listed. What happened to it? I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't say. Uh, I would guess that maybe somebody who captured it took the stuff out of it at some point. And the rod that budded, that, that uh, when they challenged uh, Moses and Aaron's authority, and, and Moses said, okay, all you leaders, give us your rods, and we'll put them in the tabernacle, and we'll see which one buds. And not only did it bud, it grew extra branches out and almonds, and it didn't just start growing. It grew into a whole tree, and they took his rod and put it into the, into the uh, ark. All right? But that is what it, that's what they're building this building for. There's not a whole lot going into this building. All right? So he sits there and he makes his house and he makes little, and it says narrow lights, windows for narrow lights. Doesn't tell us how many, but they're really narrow slits. And all they were designed was to let light in so that the people could work uh, without just the menorah being lit, lit on it. Does everybody know what the menorah is? The, 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 the seven-pronged the seven candle, seven. candlestick? All right. Well, it celebrates Hanukkah, but Hanukkah was when they, Hanukkah is a celebration when they lit the menorah in the temple and they had enough oil for one day and it burned for seven. Oh, I thought so it was a manicure. It was a very big, they might nowadays, but it's a celebration of a miracle from God to keep the menorah lit longer than it should have been lit and encouraged the Jewish people and they made it into the celebration of the festival of lights is what it's called. Hanukkah, celebration of the Festival of Lights. And we find in the New Testament in, in the Gospels that Jesus went to the celebration of the Festival of Lights, which is even in Jesus' day they were celebrating Hanukkah. And he attended Hanukkah celebrations. So just history, history for us. And then around this, around this main building in verse 5, it says he built around the house chambers around about it against against the walls of the house, round about both the temple and the oracle. And when they say the oracle here, they're talking about the Holy of Holies. All right, so we have the temple and then what they're calling the Holy of Holies, even though it's around the same wall. And it's just divided off. And he says it built chambers around the whole building. And the chambers that, you, that are built literally were kind of a pyramid-type thing. He had the first one were seven cubits cubits wide, the next one was six cubits, and the next one were five cubits, and they stacked in such a way that they were beside the walls of the temple. What they use these for, nobody really knows. They speculated it was for housing, for food, and for houses for the priests and stuff to be able to stay inside the temple area without being in the temple. 
All right. So he builds these, these chambers up against the wall of the tabernacle. And it says that he built them in such a way that they weren't actually fastened. They, they didn't nail the, anything from those buildings into the, te the temple walls. They had, a, they had runners and stuff in it that they would lay, lay up against. So almost he stacked them so that they leaned into the temple. All right. So he's trying very hard to make sure that there's a separation between God's area and the area that the priests are going to be ministering on a day-to-day -day basis in the storage areas. And we're going to find out all through history this comes down to many times the te temple of God, when the kings were bad, became junkyards. They would just store junk in these, these cabinets. I'm sure they didn't put it in the, in the Holy of Holies in the holy place, but all these little rooms and everything became junk areas. We don't know where to put it. We'll, we'll just put it in. We'll put it. We'll put it in. We'll, we'll store it in the church. <laughs> you know, we're not using it anyway. We'll just store it in the church. All right. Uh, and uh, you know, it kind of sounds funny to us, but that's exactly what happened to them. It became junkyard for them. You know, they, they just junk. You know, threw all the junk. When when uh, Josiah cleans out, becomes king at eight years old. He cleans out the temple, and they find the book of the law that had not been used, and imagine this, for a generation or so, they had never even read anything about the Bible, and yet God protected it. And it's kind of hard for us in America to believe, but you know, it's kind of sad for us in America is the Bible is the most sold book in the world. Most Christians in America, most people in America have two or three Bibles in their house, and how many people actually ever read the Bible? It just sits there, gathering dust almost as bad as in Josiah's day when it sat in the tabernacle, in the, in the temple, nobody even knowing it was there. All the sin, and when Josiah had it read before the people, it, it scared them because they realized all the rules that they had not been obeying God on. You know, and this is the thing, when we start reading the Bible, all of a sudden we get really convicted of, God, there's a lot of things I'm not doing for you. And thank God for his, his forgiveness. Because we can look at it and say, wow, God, I didn't know there were so many things I wasn't supposed to be, able to be doing. And God says, yes, and my mercy's covered it. My grace is covering it. So we have this temple going up. He's building these walls, or these buildings around it. So we're getting kind of a pyramid effect to the, to, the, uh, to the outside of the temple, which is kind of scary when you think about it because the, temple, the, the ziggurats are always going toward the false gods. And yet Solomon is incorporating that into the temple. And so the more I read about this, and you know, I'm getting less and less impressed with Solomon the more I read about him at times. You know, he, was, he made so many little concessions to other, other things you know, in his designs and, his, and, and what he did. And then he says, in verse 7 it says, they fit everything together outside the temple. There was no chiseling, no hammers, no axes, being used in the temple. They, would, they worked on outside the temple and they brought it in and they fit it together perfectly. You know, we, we think about prefabricated houses and stuff being, being the thing of today. Solomon was doing that way back then. He prefabricated the, the temple basically. He says, here's all the pieces, bring them in. I don't want to hear a hammer in the, in the temple. This is God's house. It's going to be silent was his attitude. There's going to be a quietness about his house. Now, I'm sure they weren't real quiet as they were hauling stones, 
stones in because some of those stones are supposedly around a ton and that was without that was without uh, cranes and everything that we have today and they're going to raise them up 15 yards in height you know I wonder how they got these these rocks up that high sometimes and it almost be fun just to go back there and watch how they did this stuff and they did it with sheer brute force and I'm sure they used pulleys and that type of stuff to move things around but still it's even with pulleys moving moving uh, several hundred pounds of rock and stone up to a ton is a big deal and this is what they're building to God to honor God which is why it's a great great modern a great uh, wonder of their day you know building something that high is a big deal all right and he said huh? it was yeah it was it was higher than wide which is very unusual building because it was only 10 cubits wide 15 cubits high so if you looked at it from the front it would just look narrow and skinny uh, tall and skinny you know and from the side it had some distance you know but still it was a very small building and probably looked funny if you've ever looked at buildings that are kind of out of skew a little bit that's what this one is it's kind of out of skew usually our buildings are, are wider than they are tall even if they're very tall they're still wide in their process and so this one is, is very narrow, and it says there was no iron tools being used in the temple. Now, God had told the people of Israel when they built an altar, the rocks were to be unshapen. They were to be natural. So Solomon, I think, has taken part of that logic into the temple. Okay, we're not shaping the tools, them here. He shaped them outside. But he's taking part of that logic behind, behind it. God wanted things to be natural, unworked, because he wasn't taking man's work. And that's why the tabernacle itself had nothing but goat skins and linens and, and things. It wasn't things that had been well designed by man. Solomon is putting a lot of man's work into the temple, which is what God didn't want. He didn't want the work of man being in the temple and into worship, just as he does with us. He doesn't want our work in his worship. He wants us to surrender to him, and he works through us. Because the good works that we do are just right, uh, filthy rags to God. He says, no, only what is done in my name and by my Son and my Holy Spirit is what stands. And this is important for us. There are so many people that think somehow before I can serve God, I've got to get right. That is not what God says. He says, if you are saved, you are right. All right? And this is something that's very important for us. If you are saved, God says, you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. You are perfect. Now, we know we're trying to get ourselves perfect, but God says, I'm going to use you as if you're perfect because he sees us as perfect. And that's good news for us. It's really good news for us because when we mess up, God says, okay, you've, you've asked for forgiveness. Here you go. Back, back to where you are. Man would say, okay, you, were, you fell from step five down to, step, down to the ground. You started step one again. God says, here, let me lift you up and put you right back on step five because you didn't earn it in the first place. And he says, I'm just going to put you back on step five. And you know I'm being kind of you know, figurative on here. There's no real steps of God. But he says, I'm placing you right back where you fell from because it wasn't you in the first place. 
When we are walking in God, it's all him if it's of any value. Solomon is bringing in the works of man and doing a beautiful work of man. And God is still going to honor it. But I kind of picture that God probably wanted the tabernacle there. Say, the tabernacle is what I asked you for. And you're not bringing the tabernacle in. And you know, we kind of understand this. You know, how many people in the city want to see a big tent sitting in the middle of the city? You know, here's my city, <laughs> all my rocks and all my, all my trees and everything, and there's that tent. That, that old, ugly tent that's been around for 479 years, and we've got to go to that tent and worship. <laughs> you know, and this is the problem that we have sometimes. People, even in our day and age, sometimes go, you know, well, that's all there is to that church? It's not, it's not all fancy and decked out. There's no, no, no gold and silver. You know, some of the greatest places I've gone to worship are places that look like garbage dumps, kind of. You know, God is there, and he's being ministered to, and that doesn't mean go out and make every church a garbage dump, but you know, if God is present, it doesn't matter what the place looks like. It doesn't matter what kind of music is being played. It doesn't matter what's going on inside if God is there. And I see many churches, and it almost scares me what I'm seeing in today's churches where we have you know, different churches for different styles of worship. And, you know, and what are we telling the people? When you go to worship, it's all about you. What do you like? What don't you like? instead of it's all about God. And church really is all about God. And if it's not about God, it's not right. If I'm saying, well, I'm here because I like all the music and it really makes me feel good, or I'm not here because I don't like the music or whatever the key might be, we're in the wrong attitude. It has to be about God. Does that mean we can't change? No, it means we can change. We can make, we can make modifications. We can make things more, more enjoyable. But it still has to be about God. Why are we coming to, ch to a church service? So that we can spend time with God and his people. If it's anything else, we're going for the wrong reason. If we're going just to meet people so we can network and get our business going, or we're, we're going there just so I can feel good, I'm going for the wrong reason. My focus must be on God for it to be true worship. And we need to be careful about this because it's easy to fall aside, or fall, fall aside and say, well, I just don't like what's going on there. I don't like the music or I don't like these people, so I'm not going. And the question that God probably has for each one of us is, who said it was about you? You know, you were supposed to come for me. And, you know, this is something we've got to be very careful of. It's easy to fall into this. When I walked away from church, nobody loves me, nobody cared that I haven't been here for three weeks in a row, and I stopped coming. Was it anybody's problem? Well, maybe they should have cared, maybe they should have called, but it was still my problem. You know, I took their, their lack of concern as, as, a, as a reason not to come, and it was a bad thing to do. And led me into a year of not walking with God, not reading my Bible. You know, I'd walked with him for so long, I didn't go into drugs and alcohol, I just stopped walking with God. I did it worse. I went into workaholism. I stayed at work 80 hours a week. You know, so I was never at home either. So it was just as bad. I took and replaced God with work. And God is saying, what are you doing for me? Is it all about you or is it all about me? When we serve him, are we serving him for recognition or are we serving him so that he is exalted? Are we looking to say, what am, what's in it for me? <laughs> or what's in it for God? 
And God is the one that's going to make it happen. And they're building this temple. In verse 8, we get more description of the temple. The door of the middle chamber in the right side of the house, and they went up the winding stairs to the middle chamber and out to the middle into the third, and he built the house and finished it and covered the house with beams and boards of, of cedar. So they build it with wood, and they cover all that wood, all, uh, build it with stone, and then they covered all that stone with cedar. And remember, they got the cedar from Hiram. And we talked about that last chapter, how David went to, went to Hiram and said, I'm going to buy all these all these, thing, these things, and they send him all this cedar, and they turn it into plywood. <laughs> plywood and two-by-fours and everything else they needed. Yeah, cedar. Is there a certain reason why they only use cedar? Uh, well, they're going to use fir, too. Mostly cedar comes from, cedar comes from Lebanon. Other than that, I don't know that there's a symbol, symbolism. Doesn't uh, bugs don't eat cedar? Uh, from what I understand, it's, keeps, it's yeah. resistance to bugs. So it's a good wood. It's a good wood for building. But for purposes of how God is using it and having symbology and for what God, because everything in the tabernacle had a sim, symbology to it. Everything. The, the silver tops, meaning redemption, to the brass for, for judgment, you know, everything in the, in the tabernacle had a symbol attached to it. We're not seeing that in the temple, yeah, the temple that's being built. Right, there was hooks, the tassels. the tassels, the hooks, the, the, the fact of what they put into it, the cherubim, all these things that they put into it all had symbols, and we talked about them a long time ago when, when we talked about the, temp, the tabernacle. This is just, he's building, not, I'm not going to say simple, he's building a beautiful temple. He, but it has no symbology behind it. All the symbols of the tabernacle have been lost when it comes to the temple. Now, it builds a very high ceiling. I mean, I can't imagine a, a, a ceiling that goes up 15 yards up into the, up before it gets into a top. And that goes all the way back into the Holy of Holies. So, I mean, you're walking into a room, imagine this, you're going to walk into this room that is 20 by 20 in the Holy of Holies, and it goes up 15, 15 yards. Well, you've got, well, 20 by 20. It's 30, it's 30 feet, 10 yards by 10 yards, and 15 up. So it's, did Solomon have a reason? He's the wisest man that's ever lived, so he might have had some, some thought on what he was doing. Remember, when you, when you walked into the tabernacle, the first covering is black, your sin. The second covering is red for the blood of Christ. The third covering is white for the purity of being washed in the blood. The fourth, the fourth one is all the blue and the gold and the, and the purple. Okay? You walked into the tabernacle and you're being, you're, you're being bombarded by the gospel message. By the gospel message. Here, all you've got is gold. All right. So, and you're losing God looking down on silver for redemption and brass being between the gr the ground and the and the and the posts, which represents judgment between man and God. So, and you're losing all of that symbolism for gold. Now, it's a precious building. It's a precious building that he builds. It's a beautiful building that he builds, but it loses all the symbology that God put into the tabernacle. And so, when we see those coverings within the tabernacle black and then red and then white. Uh, well, they had the tent and then inside they had the tent made out of linen and then they covered the tent with another covering which was white and they covered that covering with another covering of, of, uh, of red 
scarlet, scarlet, and they covered that one with black seal, seal skins. <laughs> so you had layers of, of walls as you walked in. They, so, and I just, it, it has that symbology of, of it. So when Paul starts talking in the New Testament about the tabernacle, he's thinking all about this whole idea of you walked in as you approached God, you came yeah. through sin into the blood, into purity, into the righteousness of God. Over, over, over and over, you, you just walked through, and it was the gospel message that you walked through. And so when Paul would be reading about this and talking about it, he's thinking of the beauty of the gospel message as you walk into the temple and into the tabernacle, the holy place where your prayers would go up at the altar of incense, and then the light of God on the other side and the showbread of the people. And then you go in even further into the very presence of God to the, to the mercy seat which covered the Ark of the Covenant, which was the law was covered by mercy, and then God sat on mercy. So we had the beautiful beauty of the uh, Ark of the Tabernacle. So we're losing that in here. We're not losing it all. There's still going to be the Ark of the Covenant, you know, the, the mercy gold. seed on top, but everything is now gold. Beautiful, gorgeous, but it's all gold now, and it's lost its... Oh, here's my symbol of the blood and the righteousness of God and, and the royalty that, that we're made part of. So a beautiful building, don't get me wrong. I'm not def, you know, tearing down his building, but he, we've lost the symbols that God had put into the original tabernacle. Now, God, he might have made it high so there would not be echoes and everything on all this gold. Would lose your echoes up in the, in the top and, and, and be more silent. I mean, there could be good reasons that Solomon made a very tall, tall building. Okay. Plus, he's got smoke coming out of the menorah all the time and the, and the altar of incense. So he might be saying, let's get that smoke up there as high as we can. There could be very good reasons for what he did. All right. And I'm not saying there aren't good reasons for what, what he did as far as an architectural design. I'm just saying he's taken away of all the symbols that God put into the tabernacle and the beauty of the message God had in the tabernacle. And again, I understand you're in the middle of a city. The last thing you want is this ugly tent sitting in the middle of your city, you know, bringing down your, bringing down your property price. <laughs> you know, hey, I live, right next to, I live right next to this tent. Uh, yeah, that's where we worship God, but it's a tent. You know, prime property because it's next to God, but it's, you know, you know, I understand. I understand the human thought process that went into this. But again, David's desire was to honor God with a magnificent building worthy of God. And David came up with this idea after he had built his palace and he's looking around and saying, I live in a really beautiful palace and we worship God in a tent. So David's goal was, God, I want you to have at least as a beautiful a place to worship, uh, for you to dwell as I have. You know, and I'd like it to be more so. <laughs> so I understand the desire here is good. But what I see here in the process is Many times we have desires to do great things for God, but not his way. And we need to be very careful about that. You know, God, I want to do this, this, this for you. And God says, well, it doesn't quite fit the way I want you to do it. And yet God's going to honor this temple. He's going to, he, when they get done with it and they consecrate it, the Shekinah glory of God is going to fall upon it. And it is going to be such beautiful brightness with God's presence on it that nobody can enter it for a while, just as he did to the tabernacle when they finished the tabernacle. 
the brightness of the glory of God is going to fall upon it. And people are going to go, oh, this is, this is a special building. And that's where we're at. I mean, God's still going to honor it, even though it's man doing man's thing. He still honors it. And God will oftentimes honor our desire to serve him even when it's wrong and work it out for good, just as he promises. All things all work together for good. And even when we do things the wrong way with the right heart, God oftentimes will honor what we do, as long as it's not out and out sin. But you know, God will say, okay, you did, you know, you weren't quite right, but you, you were trying to honor me, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the results. But it's much better to honor him the way he wants us, the way he tells us to. All right, much better. Even though he will honor our desires, it's much better to honor him correctly. Take the L out of gold, you got God. Yeah. And the door in the middle chamber was in the right side, so they're building stairs up these chambers on the outside, so there's a, a way to, build, to climb up the, the, the pyramid on here that these built. And so he built the house and finished it and covered the house with beams and boards of silver. And then he built chambers against the house, five cubits high, and they rested on the house with, with timber of cedars. And the word of the Lord came unto Solomon. So he's building up. He's got this thing covered with cedar. And now God, the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Verse 12. Concerning this house which you are building, if you walk in my statutes and execute my judgments and keep all my commandments to walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke unto David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Solomon gets a conditional promise from God. All right? Anytime you say, see this if and, and there then, you've got a conditional promise. David had an unconditional promise. You will always have a, a member of your family sitting on the throne of Israel. The last one that, was, that could prove his lineage was Jesus. And Jesus is the king and will be the king during the millennial kingdom and forever. So David will always have a descendant sitting on the throne. And the last of David's family that can prove their lineage. And it's proven, we have it right here in our Bible. Matthew and Luke shows us the lineage of Jesus going all the way back to David. The last one that can prove it because the records were destroyed when the, when the temple was destroyed. So this is the last record that has a lineage going back all that way that is able to be proven. And so Solomon gets a conditional. Abraham had an unconditional. Abraham, everywhere you walk is yours. And I'm going to bless all nations through you, and those people, that, those that bless you will be blessed, those that curse you will be cursed, and everywhere you walk is yours. No condition. Solomon gets a condition. And it says, if you walk in my statutes and ex execute my judgments and keep my commandments to walk in them. In other words, David, uh, Solomon's being told, obey me. All right? And we already talked a couple of chapters ago Solomon started out in the wrong way because he was walking in the, in the statutes and, and teachings of David, not of God. Here God's saying, okay, you've been trying to follow your dad's commands, now I want you to follow my commands. Get out your Bible, get reading it like you're supposed to, and study it. 
And we're going to find out as Solomon lives, he violates almost every one of God's statutes. All right? God says, don't, don't gather up lots of horses. He gathers lots of horses. Don't have a multitude of wives. He has a lot of wives. You know, don't gather up wealth. He gathers up more wealth than anybody has ever, ever had in history. Everything God said don't do, Solomon does. And Solomon's going to have the fact that God is going to say, uh, I told you, if you did these things, then I will perform my word. I will dwell among my children of Israel, and, they will not, and I will not forsake my people Israel. Even though God let them go into slavery, he still did not forsake them. So he's, gonna, he's not even going to not keep his word. He's going to let the children of Israel go into slavery and then bring them back and then send them back out again after they fall again and then bring them back. You know, Israel is probably the only nation that I, can, that I know of in history, and I've heard others say definitely, but I know of no other nation in history that was destroyed and dispersed amongst the people during the time of Babylon, comes back, becomes a nation again, gets sent back away, back out again all over the world as it did during the Roman, at the end of the Roman Empire, and then comes back again in 1948. They're the only nation that's been come and gone so many times and stayed a nation. And they're back to a nation again that is supposedly following God. They're not doing very good at it yet, but they're planning to get better. And most of them want a temple, at least the Orthodox. They want the temple. And the children of Israel are coming back. The Jewish people seem to have this homing desire to go back home. You talk to a lot of them, most of them want to go back to Jerusalem, go back to Israel. And we're going to see that happen more and more as the persecution gets stronger and stronger against them. Persecution against Jews is happening at a phenomenal rate all through the world now. And the more that that persecution comes, the more they're going to desire to go to Israel where they're going to be accepted because that's their people. That's their land. I got a question. So who destroyed the temple before uh, Rome? Romans eventually stole Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, the temple on the first, the first break, breakdown. They went to captivity into Babylon. And then when Ezra and Nehemiah returned in the years of Darius and, and Cyrus, they rebuilt Jerusalem, rebuilt the temple, and the temple that was rebuilt, Herod increased on it, and when Jesus walked on this world, the temple, of, the temple of Herod was in place. And then in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the Jerusalem again and tore down the temple, and they do not have, a, they do not have the third temple yet. The big event coming in history will be when the Jews build their third temple and start worshiping God, and then the the Antichrist in the middle of the tribulation period will enter into that tavern into that, into that place and declare himself God. And that's when the Jews will recognize that they have been deceived they, and, and they will turn to God and God will protect them for the rest of the tribulation period. And at the end of that three and a half years, Jesus returns, sets up the millennial kingdom and rule, rule out of Jerusalem for a thousand years. So... That gives you the history of the, tem of the, the temples in Israel. And, and, and Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, destroyed the first temple. The Romans destroyed the second temple. The third temple will be destroyed when God destroys the entire world. And that has not been built yet. That is the one. We will be raptured by the time that one gets built. We won't be here. So we will not be here during the time of that, that temple being built.
uh, and we will be here when the thousand year reign, so we will see that temple. But, but the Jews to this day are wanting to build a temple. The Orthodox Jews want to build a temple. And they're making plans to build a temple. The only problem is that on the Temple Mount stands the Dome of the Rock, which is one of the Muslim temples. And so it stands where the temple supposedly belongs, but all the sonars and everything say the temple actually is a little further uh, south of the, of the Dome of the Rock. And that fits in when, when uh, Ezekiel was told to, build, to measure the, temp, the third temple in his vision. He was told, do not include the uh, court of the Gentiles because it has been given to the Gentiles, which is where the Dome of the Rock stands. So I do believe that both temples will stand on the on the Temple Mount when it's time. If you see a picture of today in, in, in Jerusalem, you'll see a great big golden or bronze uh, topped building. That's the Dome of the Rock. That is where the that is the Temple Mount. That's where the Temple is supposed to be. All anybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile, including us. We're Gentiles. So lots of history here. That when we come into the end days, there will be one religion, and it's not going to be Christianity. All right. During the during the tribulation period, it is going to be one religion, all worshiping Satan. All right. Which all false religions worship Satan, so it's not that hard to bring them all together. And right now, we are in the middle of the whole process of this one church being formed. It's called ecumenicalism, and the idea is that all churches are are the same and they all follow they all follow after God and they all are trying to get to heaven and all of them are just as right as anybody else. And this is the problem and the problem that we have is that many Christian churches are buying in to this whole idea that that you can get to God however you want to get to God instead of through Jesus. Yeah. All right? And this is why true Christians are going to start suffering more and more even from these ecumenical church groups that are saying, well, you guys can't believe, you can't be believing in Jesus and the Bible. You know, these other guys are all trying to get to heaven. And you'll hear the things like, well, what about these people that don't know? That's between them and God. I don't care. Okay, they know they're a sinner. They know they need God. Like at first, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I my Father but through me. No one comes to the Father except by Jesus, period. Jesus went to the cross to die and pay for our debt. And without that payment, we will not enter into heaven. We are destined for hell. And it's a very powerful statement. You know, and it's a very harsh statement in some ways. But you know, there can't be more than one way into heaven. If, Jesus, if there was, Jesus wasted his time dying. If I could earn my way into heaven, Jesus didn't need to die. And it's very important for us to understand that because every religion out there is based on the same thing. Do more good than bad and please the deity. That's religion. Do good to please the deity. And that does not work. God's answer is, when people, I love when people, well, you can't know if you're going to heaven. I go, you can absolutely know. Without Jesus, you're not. Plain and simple. I don't care how good you are or how bad you are. Without Jesus, you're headed to hell. The deity? Who's the deity? Deity for, gen, for the un, un would be their gods. Oh. Deity is God. Oh. They don't believe in Jesus, they go to hell. And it's not just believing, it is literally putting your trust in him. It is very important for us to understand the power that this has on it. And the Satan does not like this to happen, and the world does not like to have that happen. When you go witnessing to people and you tell them you need to know Jesus, a lot of them go, well, that's too easy. Well, yeah, it's so easy you can't do it, obviously. <laughs> 
you know, what are they saying is, well, I didn't have a part in it, so, you know, because I didn't do anything, it's got to be too easy. You know, no, you're right. You didn't have a part in it. That's what makes you able to get saved. You did not have a part in it. Your righteousness is not what gets you to heaven. It's the righteousness of Christ that gets us to heaven. When we get saved, God says we are perfect. He clothes us in the righteousness of Christ, and we are able to enter into his presence because he sees us as perfect. Because he clothed us. He gave us the clothing that made us perfect. And even some of the people that believe in Jesus don't really believe in Jesus. They don't believe he's the son of God. They don't believe he's the savior. They don't believe he paid the debt. The, the debt. You know, and I've shared this one. One of my favorite scriptures in here is in Zechariah chapter 3. It says in verse 1, And he showed me Joshua, this is not the Joshua that led the people out of his, uh, after Moses, the high priest standing before the angel and the Lord, uh, of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not the brand that is plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed in filthy garments and stood before the angel. So the high priest is standing in filthy garments. Satan is there to accuse him of not being, being right. And he answered and spoke and said to those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him, and said, to him, and said unto them, Behold, I have caused your iniquity to pass from you, and I have clothed you with a change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre on his head. So they set a fair mitre on his head, and they clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by, and the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, uh, Thus saith the Lord, if you will walk in my ways and if you will keep my charge, you shall then judge my house and you shall keep my courts. What did God do? The high priest in his own filthy rags of righteousness with Satan there to accuse him. Kind of just said, Satan, one moment. Angels, go clean this guy up. Then turns to Satan and goes, okay, now what was your problem? What was your accusation, Satan? All right, Joshua, now go out and do, go, go live the way you're supposed to live. This is the way God treats Satan when he comes up to attack us in front of God. Jesus says, one moment, they've got my righteousness on now. Okay, what was your complaint, Satan? What a beautiful picture this is if we really grab hold of this. Satan stands before us to accuse us, and God is clothing us and saying, okay, you've got the righteousness of Christ on? All right, I don't see any problem here. Satan, what are you talking about? Satan is at a loss because we are seen as perfect by God. What a beautiful statement that we have. God sees us as perfect when we are in Christ. We accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and we always, all we have to do is say, God, I'm a sinner. Come in and, and forgive me and be my Lord. And he comes in and washes away our sin with the blood, clothes us in the righteousness of Christ and says we are perfect. We need to grab hold of that for ourselves, number one. God says, I'm perfect. It doesn't matter what I've done. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. God says, I am perfect. Then as we learn to show it to ourselves, then we need to learn to show it to others. God, I can't judge this person because you say they're perfect. I just need to love them. The power of God's love changes lives. 
I have seen so many lives that get changed because of God's grace. I have not seen lives changed because of laws and rules. You may get somebody looking good, thinking they're doing good, but their life and their heart is not changed without God's love and grace. But when God gets hold of them through his love and his grace, and he changes them from the inside out, they get on fire for God, and they get built up, and they get excited about God, and who knows what's going to happen once they get that excitement from God from the inside out. Because it's all God anyway. And that's what we have to remember so often. Nothing I do that is generated by me is going to please God. Because the works of the flesh are always motivated and tainted by the flesh. Even if they're good. I go out and I feed the hungry and I clothe the, clothe the, the, the naked and I, and I go to the hospitals and I heal people and I cast out demons and I give the best messages out in the world. If I'm doing it in my own strength, it's nothing. Hell is going to be filled with people that are good. And heaven's going to be filled with a lot of bad people because we're all bad people. Forgiven by God's grace. And we're going to be filled up there and we're going to go and we're all going to be able to say one thing, I'm here because of the grace of God. Period. Nothing I did gets me into heaven. Nothing I do makes me get anything in heaven. It's all by God's grace and mercy. And the good news is he's building beautiful mansions for us or suites of rooms. Mansions literally mean suites. So he is building this great big building and saying, here, here's your suite of rooms. We're going to go in. I don't know if anybody's ever been to a really fancy hotel where you walk in and there's a, or you might have seen them on TV. You, know, you walk in and here's your little sitting room and off to the side is a couple bedrooms and, and over here is another, another room with your, with your bathroom that's bigger than most houses. Okay, This is what Jesus is up there building for us. He's building and decorating mansions, suites of rooms for us in the palace and says, this is your room decorated by the works you allowed him to do through you. Some people are going to have huge, beautiful suites of rooms. Others, they're going to have a suite of rooms. <laughs> you know, here's your cot over in the corner, but you're going to be glad to have that cot in the corner. Others are going to walk in and say, well, how did, God, how did I deserve this? You know, I've got eight bedrooms here, and all of them have beautiful, beautiful beds, you know, and I've got to, you know, and we look and, and we don't know what God's going to be doing, and we don't know what God is doing through us. Because one of the things we're going to find when we get to heaven is God is looking for ways to reward us. The few, the, if you only have a few times when you're faithful, God's going to say, there it is, I got it. I've got it, and I'm going to reward you for it. If you've been very faithful, you're going to walk into a huge, beautiful suite, but you're going to be happy to have whatever you have, and it's going to be beautiful because it's in heaven. Even if you have a cot, you're going to have the best-looking cot that has ever been in existence. Yeah. But, but this is the point that we have on it. When we get blessed by God, it's, we're not even recognizing what it is that he's blessing us for. Because when we're truly serving him, it's not us. And we're not lifted up. We're not exalted. The time you said something kind to somebody when you didn't even know you said something kind to them and they go, wow, that was just a, such a blessing. And you get rewarded for that kind word. The time you gave somebody and it really wasn't a big deal to you because you had so much of whatever and you, just, you were just being generous, 
and God says, you did it with the right heart, you weren't looking to get anything back, there's a reward. You said a prayer for somebody, a reward. You know, you know, who knows what all the rewards up in heaven are going to be? I don't. We're going to be very surprised when we get there. We're going to be surprised when somebody says, you know, comes up to you, I'm in heaven because you did such and such. You know, all of, you, know, you gave money to the, to the missionary so the missionary could stay on the field. I'm here because you gave that money that kept the missionary on the field. Well, I only gave the dollar. That dollar helped. <laughs> you know, I didn't do much. Whatever you did with the right attitude works. People who give away lots and lots of money and trying to get recognition, they got their, they got their reward. They got their recognition they wanted. You know, if I'm being nice to people just so the God see how good, nice I'm being, I got my recognition. I got my recognition already. I'm not going to be rewarded for it. Very important for us as we go out and God says, Solomon, obey me. Obey me and there is a, I will not leave. And that's what he tells us. Obey me for, and get the blessings. We don't obey for the blessing, but when we are obedient, he will bless. And this is the good news. There's always a consequence for everything we do, good or bad. We do bad things, there's consequences, and we like to call those consequences. We know they're not, they're not good. When we do good things, there's consequences. We like to call them rewards. And they are rewards. When I do the right, the consequence is I get rewards. When I do wrong, I get punished. And the punishment is always worse than I expect it to be. Always. It would always be harder than you think it's going to be because life, I've met people, well, you know, if I do such and such, this is going to happen. I'm going, yeah, that's what you think is going to happen. You just wait because it's always worse. The good news is the good is always better than we could ever imagine it to be. But we're not motivated by, by the good. And if we are, we're not, we're not going to ever see it anyway. But the good will always be rewarded more than we could ever imagine it to be because God, God has infinite wealth to give us. Yeah. He, he gives us a whole bunch of stuff and he says, I haven't even begun. Can you imagine having so much stuff that you just, you bless somebody with a ton of stuff and you're going, uh, you got enough there? Oh, well, I got plenty. No, I'm not done yet. <laughs> I've got another four or five tons for you. I've got plenty. <laughs> I don't know if any of you have been that way, but I've been that way at times with God saying, God, I've got, I don't know if I could take any more blessing. <laughs> you know, I don't know if I can take any more blessing and then he keeps piling it on. And you go, wow, God, you are so good. You are so good with what you give us. And you know, we need to be able to understand this. Even when God is bringing judgment into our life, he's going to turn it for good. He's going to teach us something out of it. He's going he's to make something good. Because my favorite verse, you all know, goes for all things work together for good. Not some things, not most things, not many things all things. Even if I make a mess out of my life and I've caused all my problems in my life, that's part of all things, and God will work good out of it. Now, it may not be for my good, but he is going to work good from it. That is the good news. Everything that happens, whether I cause it, whether somebody else causes it, whether it just is Satan's testing me, it will work for good. And God will bless somebody or some, something, and often me, because of it. Ultimately, we will get blessed for anything that, in our life because heaven will be full of blessings. Many times in this world, he will bless us. 
But sometimes our, the good is just other people seeing us be faithful. There's great blessing in being faithful to God and having others watch and being encouraged by you being faithful. When everything seems to be going wrong in your life and you stay focused on God and you stay looking at him and they look at you and say, I don't know how you can do that. And it encourages them to follow God. That's a blessing. And that'll be a blessing in the long run. And somebody comes to God because of it, that's even a better blessing. If they actually turn to God because they watched me go through a hard time or they get stronger in God because they watched me or you go through a hard time and they turn to God and, and walk with him stronger, what a blessing in the long run. You get to heaven and go, I, I, I changed because of you. you know, I don't know how that will react in heaven. I can't imagine what that will react in heaven because we're not going to have the pride and, the, and that, but it's still got to feel good. It's still got to feel good that somebody is in heaven because of something you did, said, or acted, or even suffered through. And people came to Christ. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for how much you love and care for us. Help us to walk with you in strong, strong ways. And help us to keep seeking after you in all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.